So Bart, I had a question for you. You're the only one I think that can answer it. I really think you're the one because I couldn't, I couldn't get the answer on the internet. Has the United States ever played the Netherlands in basketball? Um, unofficially, yes. Like in a, like a world tournament or something like that? No. Okay. So here's my next question. Which is more likely? The United States beating Netherlands in soccer or, or Netherlands beating the U.S. in basketball? All right. I was just curious. I, Another question, who are you rooting for? Just curious. <laughs> all right, never mind. I won't ask. I won't ask. I won't ask. I was thinking all, I was thinking, Bart, about you. All right, let's open in prayer and then we'll get... <laughs> you know, I was actually in Amsterdam after they won. They, I think they made it to like the final four last time, didn't they? Yeah. I think so. And they, I was there right after one of their wins. It was nuts. It was nuts. It was awesome. It was kind of fun. All right, let's go ahead and uh, open in prayer. Lord, thank you for this morning and the chance we have to study um, the Word and to understand sanctification, understand uh, the work you want to do in us and through us. I pray that you would guide my words and all of us as we study together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is a, a four-week Bible for Life class in which we're going to be overviewing um, my book, Infinite Journey, summarizing it, which I wrote to capture or define uh, spiritual maturity. What is spiritual maturity? What is it we are aiming for in sanctification? And so we're going to give a kind of a four-week uh, overview of that. The book itself is very long, uh, but this will be kind of an introduction. And the book aside, um, the idea is to give us something we should be pointing toward in our own lives and uh, also in the lives of others. This is something that we do for each other. You know, the Bible uh, says that we uh, have a responsibility to love one another and help each other grow. Our church covenant says we'll watch over one another in brotherly love. And I think it's reasonable to say that one of the ways we watch over is by watching over each other's progress in Christ, that we care about each other's spiritual growth. And it's one of the things that we do. So we're going to give a sense of that. Now today, this week, I'm going to do an overview review of the whole thing uh, in one, one session. And then the next three weeks, we'll go over uh, the four main points. I'll combine uh, two of them next week, and then we'll keep going in that respect. So I want to begin by saying um, all of this kind of situates why we exist. What is our purpose in existing? This is a, a very important question. I would say it's important to ask evangelistically. That as we're talking to people, there's some main questions everybody has to answer. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why does everything exist? And then what is my purpose? What is my identity? Why do I exist? What's my purpose in life? Etc. And go on from there. Well, the Bible answers that beautifully. And I would say the central answer the Bible gives is we exist for the glory of God. We exist to learn and to delight in the glory of God and then also to display it. Both. We, we have a role to play on both sides. Both to see glory and to be glorious ourselves. That's the way I see it. Now, amazingly, it's not that hard to prove that uh, concept biblically, but you have to put it together from various verses. There actually isn't any one verse other than this Isaiah verse which says we were created for the glory of God. Um, but it's something that you really synthesize and put together from a lot of places. But there is this one verse. Can someone read it for us? Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I am. 
So there's that word created and then the word for a purpose statement for my glory. We were created for the glory of God and he calls them sons and daughters so we would say also redeemed for the glory of God. Um, there are other verses that teach it a little more indirectly. Ephesians uh, 1, 4 through 6 says we were redeemed for the glory of God. Uh, it says in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. Um, or sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Actually three times in Ephesians 1 it says to the praise of his glorious grace or to the praise of his glory. So the idea is we are redeemed so that God's glory might be displayed and praised. Alright and then again Romans 8 29 and 30 for those God foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Now that phrase is vital for our study for the four weeks and really for our whole lives. We were predestined by God to be conformed to Christ. Now what does that mean to you, uh, that phrase, to be conformed to the likeness of his son? Now by the way, I know it's early on Sunday morning, but I really like give and take. So um, I know Andy, you're ready to go, all right? So at any moment, all right? But what, let me just ask generally, what does it mean to you to be conformed to the likeness of his son? To become more like Christ. Okay. Yeah, to adopt his, like his mannerisms, his way of thinking, his heart. Absolutely. And that is what I think of when I think of the goal of sanctification, the goal of salvation, personally, for us personally, is complete conformity to Christ in every respect. That will think like Christ does, love like Christ does, act like Christ does completely. So Christ-likeness, which I think is also we could say is the same as holiness, I would consider those equivalent, uh, that is the goal of sanctification. That's, that's our goal of salvation. Let's go back to the verse. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's super encouraging. You are destined to end up like Jesus. And, and all of the power of God and the wisdom of God is at work on you to make that happen and nothing's going to stop it. So what that means is all of the things that in, whereby you so disappoint yourself, namely your own sins, sins of omission, sins of commission, are all temporary if you're a child of God. You will someday be completely conformed to Christ in every respect. You should be filled with hope, um, filled with, with joy at any rate predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Firstborn meaning taking that preeminent role. We are like him, but he has a role we don't have. He is the son of God, we're not. He's the second person of the Trinity, we're not. But we will be like him in his humanity, perfect humanity, that's us. He's the son of man, perfect man. We will be perfectly human as he is, etc. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There's a process here that we're on and that's what we're talking about. This is about process. Um, this class, these four weeks about process whereby we can little by little be conformed to Christ. Interestingly, sanctification is not mentioned there. So uh, because it's not mentioned, I've thought to myself that sanctification could rightly be seen a kind of a subset of glorification. Uh, and this we get from 2 Corinthians also 3 where it says we move from glory to glory. So ever increasing glory. So in, in one sense, the only way I can answer why is sanctification not listed here, justified, sanctified, glorified is the usual order. Uh, I think Paul didn't make a mistake, it's just that I look on the one as a subset of the other. Sanctification is kind of an early process of glorification whereby little 
by little we conform to Christ. That's how I see it. Now, what is glory? What, what do we mean by that? What is glorification? How do we glorify God? Uh, it's something we throw around, but it's something we don't uh, take the time to define. Now, as I've looked and studied in the scripture, I see uh, sometimes glory um, is, is portrayed as visible light, bright light. For example, like the angel who appeared to the shepherds outside Bethlehem, and it says, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. That was just literal light, and they were all terrified. Also, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, 22, it says the city does need, not need the light of, the, of a, the sun or the moon or the light of the lamp because the glory of God gives it light. That's literal light. The whole new universe will be radiant or illuminated with the glory of God. So there's that visible light. But then in other sense, uh, there's a sense of attributes or the perfections of God. His nature. What is he like? And so the perfections of God come, like I made a list some time ago of 26 attributes or perfections of God, um, which uh, I got from systematic theology. So that'd be, you know, for example, God's power, his wisdom, his love, his mercy, his wrath, his justice, these are attributes. When these attributes are put on display, that's the glory of God. And so we can see that where Jesus says to the Father in John 17, now glorify me. You know, and he's talking about the cross and then beyond that to the glory that he had with God in heaven. So the cross is a tremendous display of the glory of God. But it was stunningly dark that day. Supernaturally dark. I mean, eerily dark. So there was no visible light, but there was tremendous glory coming from the cross. So you put all that together, I would say to glorify God means to put his attributes on radiant display. Or on the other side, to be the receiver, to see it and to esteem it. To see God's glory and to feel the weight of it and to be moved by it and melted by it, that's the, the both sides of that equation. So that's what we're here for. We're here to put God on display and then to see God on display in creation and other people. That's why we're here. Isn't it cool to know why you're here? That's what you're here for. You're here every day to look around and see the greatness of God and to put God on display yourself by your own good works. Can someone read Matthew 5 for us, 14 through 16? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket and on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's beautiful. You're supposed to shine. You're supposed to shine so that what? What's the final end of your shining in, these, in this passage, Matthew 5? Glory to God. Right, so that others will see the greatness of God in you. Right? So as you act like Jesus, right, um, if you're compassionate to broken people, uh, if you speak the truth, if you live for the glory of God, whatever ways you can imitate Christ, others will see, according to this passage that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, they will see your good deeds and think God is great. That's a, that's a good reason to live, isn't it? Because people watch you and see you, they will think God is great or Jesus is great. That's why you should live. That's why we're here. All right, nothing in all the universe glorifies God so much as the full salvation of his elect through Jesus, Jesus Christ. Now that's quite a statement. 
I mean, there's a lot of things that glorify God. Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory was dressed like one of these. Now, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire, dot, 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 right? So there is glory in a wildflower. There is more glory in other things. <laughs> it's not everything's equally glorious. In the hierarchy of glory, as I've studied theology, studied the Bible, there is nothing that is more glorious than the salvation of lost people through Christ. That is the greatest display of glory there is. That's the pinnacle of creation and redemption, us. And so that's, a, that's an amazing thing to be part of, incredible. Nothing in all the universe glorifies God so much as salvation. Salvation was elect through the work of Jesus Christ. All right, now, that's big picture. Now let's zero in. How do I fit into that? I would contend, and I do in my book, I would contend the way we best glorify God now that we have come to faith in Christ, so I'm speaking to Christians. If you have come to faith in Christ, if you haven't yet, and you come to Jesus and say, what must we do to work the works of God? He's going to say, believe in the one he has sent. There's nothing for you to do other than that. Believe in Jesus. But once you have believed in Jesus, you're like, all right, now what? I'm sure you've noticed some time ago, if you're a Christian, you came to faith in Christ and you weren't whisked away to heaven. Have you noticed? All right, you're here today listening to me instead of seeing God in the face. All right, so you have to listen. You have to listen to me. And you have to deal with aches and pains and you have to deal with a job and you're here. So what do I do with it? All right, answer, glorify God. How? I would commend for your consideration making progress the rest of your life in two journeys. The internal journey of sanctification or conformity to Christ, progress in your salvation, and the external journey of gospel advance through evangelism and missions and discipleship of others, helping them in their internal journey. That's what you should do the rest of your life. Everything else is lesser. I'm not saying you shouldn't hold down a job or you shouldn't, you know, get your car repaired if it needs it or, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of little lesser tasks we have to do. I understand that. But in that, the bigger task is glorify God by growing in Christ-likeness yourself and spreading the gospel, winning lost people, doing missions, being involved in other people's lives. That's, that's the work, all right? So the internal journey of sanctification is portrayed in 2 Peter 3.18. Someone read that for us, if you would. But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. It's an efficient verse. It's the only one that I can find. There may be another that I've missed, but the only one in which is just simply commanded to grow. You are commanded to grow. And so we're supposed to grow as Christians. We're supposed to become more like Christ. That's a command given. Uh, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the internal journey of growth. External journey is uh, Great Commission. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. That's work for us to do. That's our job. We are, along with all the other Christians in the world, responsible for that responsible to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, we have our own field to work. Can't do it all. You can pray big, but you, can, you only can act in your field, whatever God assigns to you, but that's it. We are called on to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then, of course, very famously, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It's a key word, disciples. Those are people on the internal journey of holiness. They're not converts only. They're disciples. 
All right, make disciples, learners of Jesus, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the initiating ordinance, the beginning of the Christian life there, that's water baptism, and what comes next? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That's the internal journey. That they would become increasingly obedient to everything Christ has commanded. Any sense of how many of those commands there might be? Do you have any sense of that? of how many things. If we expand beyond the red letter editions of your Bible to everything God said through the prophets and the apostles that is still binding on the conscience of a Christian, would you say that you are responsible to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Would you say that? Please nod your head yes. I know it's early, but yes. You think you're responsible to love your neighbors yourself? Yes. That's the law. All right. Are there sub-commands? There are. Caring for the poor and needy. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It just goes on and on. Wow, and so once you get into that detail, all the epistles, how many commands are there in the epistles? Lots. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, all that kind of thing. You have to be at church, you know, financial faithfulness, relationship to the government, neighbors, job, right? Stewardship. It's like, pastor, that's a lot. It is. I worked on that book for six years, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like, am I really supposed to do all this? Yeah, you are, but the Holy Spirit will help you. But that's what teaching them to obey everything I have commanded involves. It's a big work. So again, big picture, glorify God. We're here for the glory of God, to enjoy God and to see his work and to delight in it and to be, be, have God working in us too. But then below that, then you get the two journeys that I myself would grow, that you would be more like Christ 10 years from now or five years from now than you are right now. That's what you should be after. How am I not like Jesus? How can I grow? And then how can I help others? I'm here to help others too. What can I do for lost people, lost co-workers, neighbors? What could I do for unreached people groups? Even if I'm not called to be a missionary, what could I do through prayer, through giving, through encouragement of those that are missionaries? What can I do? That's what we should do the rest of our lives. That's what I'm committing. All right? Now next, let's zero in on our own salvation. Our salvation comes in stages. So I'll give you a little bit of a foretaste of a sermon that I was working on this week, and then I'll preach God willing in a few weeks. Someone read Mark 8, 22 to 25. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. All right, so this is a fascinating miracle. It's really a one-off. There's no other miracle like it. All right, why would I say that? What makes this miracle unique? Stages. Stages. Seemed like Jesus kind of swung and missed the first time, you know? Seems like. All right, but don't be like Jesus' disciples who frequently thought he was behaving strangely or perhaps even foolishly. Do you remember when the woman with the bleeding problem came and touched him and he stopped and said, who touched me? Remember? And his disciples were like, what? <laughs> what were they thinking at that moment when Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? What were they thinking about Jesus? It's a silly question. You're asking, I mean, you have some talent, Jesus, but you have some odd moments too. But did he? No. So we should not think low thoughts of Jesus ever. There's always intentionality in everything he does. Like, keep this in mind. I'm about to preach on another healing where Jesus heals a deaf mute. Everything Jesus does physically 
Everything Jesus does physically for the deaf mute, he doesn't need to do any of it. You know that, don't you? He could have just thought it and the deaf mute would be healed. So all the touching and the, and the thing with the tongue and all that, it's all of it, uh, all of it intentional. Uh, Jesus does that. So it is with this healing here. Jesus healed this man in stages because he wanted to. Why? Well, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. It just says that's what happened. It's up to us to kind of guess at why. But one of the, the contentions I've been making consistently through the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus' physical healings actually physically happened. I'm not a liberal denier of miracles. I believe the miracles literally historically happened. But I also think that they're pictures. And I think the text, the Bible gives us permission to see them that way. That there is such a thing as spiritual blindness. Jesus openly says so in John 9. There is such a thing as spiritual blindness. For judgment I came into the world that those who see may become blind and those who are blind may be able to see. Clearly he's not talking about physical healing at that point because he's speaking a word of judgment to the Pharisees who are spiritually blind. So that gives us the permission to take the physical healing over as a metaphor into the spiritual world and say, okay, we are all messed up physically and spiritually and we need to be healed. So if that's true then, this healing in stages may give us a picture of our salvation coming to us in stages. Whether it does or doesn't, I'm telling you, our salvation comes to us in stages. This is just a picture of what the Bible teaches in other places. We are, we could accurately say we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. The word saved is used in all three time senses in the New Testament. So we're, it's a process. Salvation's a process. So four stages I'm going to give you. Stage one, the process of calling and drawing. So this is the work that God does on an as yet unconverted elect person to bring them to the point of faith. Calling or drawing them. All right. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. So there's a, a forceful drawing, like a net, dragnet, going through the water, pulling that person to Christ. Pulling that person. Like in Acts 26, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads are inducements or reasons to believe in Jesus. And Saul was kicking them. He didn't want it. He didn't want to become a Christian. So he's pushing back. So there's that process of calling and drawing. How long can that go on? I don't know. Short time, long time. But God is working. And he draws that person. Stage two, the instant of justification. The first process could go on for years. Justification is not a process. There's no dimmer switch on it. It's binary. You're justified or you're not. All right? So there's an instant of justification. Repentance and faith in Christ results in justification. The instantaneous and full forgiveness of all sins, past, present, and future. All of it. God, God knows better than we do that partial forgiveness is worthless. I mean, one sin will condemn you for all eternity. So he knows you need full forgiveness, and he gives it to you in an instant at justification. The moment you have faith in Christ, you are completely forgiven. So you think about uh, this healing of the paralyzed man. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. All of them. And what's so beautiful is the healing showed that he had the right to say it. He had the right to do it. He's the judge of all the earth. When Jesus says that your sins are forgiven, they are. And that's a beautiful thing. Or again, the thief on the cross. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. He said, Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. All your sins are forgiven. You're about to cross over into, into heaven. Beautiful statement. There's no sanctification there. There's no process. The thief on the cross wasn't made gradually a better person. He didn't have much time for that. They're about to come and shatter his bones with a hammer. All right, he has no time for that, but he goes to heaven. 
And that's the beauty, the instant of justification. It's a beautiful picture. And then Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. It's a done deal. Our sins are forgiven. It's an instant. All right? That's a very important instant because other things happen in an instant. Okay? Uh, we are seen to be perfectly righteous in Christ. That's imputed righteousness is given to us. God who made, God uh, made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we are seen to be righteous in Christ. At that same moment, the person is born again. They were dead in their transgression and sins. Now they're alive. Dead in life. There's no dimmer switch on that. You were dead. Now you're alive. All right? Instant life. You are also adopted into the family of God. There's no process of that. There's an earthly process of adoption. There's no process of this. In an instant, you are now a son or daughter of the living God. And you're given the mark of adoption, the indwelling Holy Spirit, in an instant, fully. You don't get some of the Spirit. You get the Holy Spirit. So how important is that instant? More than you can imagine. It's an incredibly important instant. Not a process. Also use the language of being born again, John 3.3. 3. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again, born of water and the spirit. And Romans 8.15, you receive the spirit of adoption by which you cry, Abba, Father. All of that happens in an instant. Works are not related. Effort is not related. There's no effort. It's effortless on your part. There's no works. If you bring your works into that, you have misunderstood the gospel. It's a false gospel, Galatians tells us. You bring your works into that, you are completely wrong. So that's an instant. All right, stage three, the process of sanctification. All right, that's the gradual transformation of a Christian from habitual lifestyle of sin to habitual lifestyle of Christ-likeness or holiness. So gradual transformation process is absolutely is a dimmer switch. I mean, and you have your good days and your bad days. Like one author wrote, three steps forward, two steps back. Ever had a day like that or a week like that? It's like, I don't know, I hope it was a net plus this week. I don't really know. Some, you know, it's ups and downs. You have your good days and bad days. You have times in which you foolishly lurch back into sin and you cause damage to yourself. This, that's it. That's the life we're in right now, the process of sanctification. Someone read Romans 6.19. I think one of the key sanctification verses in the Bible, 6.19. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to the purity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness. Okay, for me, the reason this verse is so important is the, the concept of ever-increasing, ever-increasing. And it's both sides of the equation. There's a just as, so also. So two things are being compared. Interestingly, Paul uses the corruption and wickedness you used to live in in a kind of a positive teaching tool sort of way saying, you know how you used to do that? Now we're going to do the same thing, but we're going to use that whole thing for something good. And what is it? It's habitual development. You are habitually developing your talent in sin before, and you are getting really good at it. Now I'm going to ask you in the same way to habitually develop your talent or your abilities for holiness. That's what he's, he's saying. There's a just as, so also. But the idea is ever-increasing. Ever-increasing wickedness before, that's done now. Ever-increasing Christ-likeness or holiness or sanctification, that's what you're on now. So this is that process verse. And there's many others, but this is a good one. Does that make sense? Romans 6, 19, just as, so also. All right, the progressive, this progressive transformation occurs by the mysterious cooperation between the believer and the Holy Spirit. We're in this together. 
All right? And it's mysterious. Why? Because the Spirit's perfect at what He does and you're not. And so here's the thing. Any failing on any given day in sanctification, are you going to be able to blame the Holy Spirit? That's an easy question, friends. No. Holy Spirit will always do His job. But He also lets you mess up. He does. He lets you make bad choices. And He very wisely orchestrates that whole thing. It's really very mysterious and powerful. There's a cooperation between the believer and the Spirit. Uh, positively, in sanctification, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, these are positive virtues, Christ-like virtues. The Spirit works them in you. All right. Negatively, get rid of the bad stuff. Get rid of wickedness and evil and sin. Put it to death. Someone read Romans 8, 13 and 14 for us. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, so this one quote does two things for me in my outline. First of all, it gives you the negative side. There's stuff you've got to kill. There's stuff you need to not do anymore. All right? Many sins. I mean, there's lots of sinless. So gossip, slander, lust thoughts, covetousness, materialism, greed, all those things. You've got to put all that negative stuff to death. All right? But this verse is also probably the best, best verse on that mysterious cooperation. Do you see the cooperation between the believer and the Holy Spirit in that verse? So tell, someone describe that. How do you see cooperation between the Spirit and the believer? On mortification. Okay. How does the verse begin? How does it begin? If by the Spirit, if by the Spirit, what's the word after the word Spirit, at least in this translation? So the, let's just go do those two words. Spirit, you. There's your cooperation. Or if you want to expand a little bit, by the Spirit, you. It's like, what does that mean? How am I supposed to do something by the Spirit? Well, the next verse says, those who are led by the Spirit are children of God. What does that give you? What sense does that give? The, the being led by the Spirit. Right. So the Spirit's beckoning, calling you to a direction, and your job is to what? Follow. And in this context, he's leading you to kill something. So I would say, it's right to say, he's leading you into battle. He's leading you to warfare. And frankly, Paul would say, if that warfare's not going on, you are not a Christian. You're going to hell. You're on that road that leads to destruction. If you're not mortifying, you're not a Christian. Because that's what it means to be a child of God. So if you have the Spirit, he is not going to let you just be lazy on sin and whatever. He won't let you do that. He won't give you over to it. He will fight your sin. Whatever it takes, he'll make you miserable in sin, all right? He will do that so that you take your responsibility seriously and you mortify. How do you do that? You pray, you abide in Christ, the Spirit's pointing you to Jesus all the time, you look at Jesus' death on the cross, you think thoughts of his blood, his suffering, all of that was for sin. Whatever it takes to get you to say no to temptation and to put sin to death, the Spirit will do that. So anyway, that's the process we're talking about. That's what sanctification, positively, those beautiful virtues, compassion, kindness, tenderness, mercy, love, all of those beautiful virtues that we imitate, and then negatively, all the negative filth, putting that to death. That's sanctification. That's what we're talking about, and you do it by the Spirit. All right, final, the instance of glorification. So I, I gave you four A and B on this. 
why. Because for most Christians, well, I don't know most, I don't know how many, what the population will be when Jesus comes back. But up to this point, certainly all Christians have been glorified in two stages, all right? What does that mean? Well, glorified in your soul and spirit at death, but not in your body, all right? And then the glorification of the body happens when? Second coming of Christ at the resurrection. All right, 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 say the resurrection happens at the second coming. All right, please don't ask me about the millennium. We're not doing that today, all right? But the, the fact is glorification happens in two stages unless you are the, in that final generation. You're alive when Jesus comes back, when he's up in the clouds and he comes back as described in the book of Revelation and all that. If you're one of that final generation, you will get both spirit glorification and body glorification at the same time. But everybody else gets it in two stages. At death, the spirit is made perfect, but the body is moldering in the grave. And then it's raised to glory in 1 Corinthians 15. Does that make sense? So that's two stages of glorification. That's the whole thing. All right? Um, and they're described there. Any questions about the process of salvation? Now, our study is on the third stage, glorification. That's what we're doing. All right? That's what we're going to learn. And my contention is you need to know what you're aiming for so that you can go after it. And the Bible hasn't left you as an orphan, hasn't left you in the dark to know what you're shooting for. Big picture, Christ-likeness. But what my book sought to do is break it into kind of component parts. And now we're going to do a flyover in the less than half an hour we have left. Um, this is a summary of about 400 pages right here. But take the chart and rotate it if you would. Um, my chart is much better than the one the publisher put in my book. <coughs> but they couldn't fit it because you had to do the whole landscape thing. They didn't want the readers rotating the book. So I, but I didn't mind you guys rotating your handout. All right, so just rotate your handout, as I'm doing now. Um, and this is a summary of um, Infinite Journey, Pathway to Christian Maturity. And what I'm contending now is that uh, just for the sake of, of study, we can break sanctification, Christ-likeness into four main categories. All right, so we're doing kind of a strobe snapshot, snapshot here of a mature person. But then I'm going to say it's dynamic, too, because this is an engine or a cycle or a process by which we grow as well. But let's just do the snapshot first and just describe a spiritually mature person. Break it into four categories, knowledge, faith, character, and action. So I'll go a little dynamic right now. I contend that knowledge feeds faith. Knowledge plus faith together transforms the heart. And out of a transformed heart, you live a better or a new life. That's what I would contend. I, I actually believe that's the case all the time. In every case, knowledge precedes faith. Knowledge and faith together transforms the heart or the character, and out of the heart we live. Um, I think the, the Bible teaches that. So that's the dynamic that we're heading toward, but let's look at the static. Knowledge, faith, character, and action. So first, knowledge I define as factual and experiential spiritual information. I use the word information as geeky as it is, because I want to put this, this at a lower level than the pure, perfect, holistic, complete knowledge that Jesus says is eternal life when he says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. I think Jesus uses the word know at a higher level than I'm using it here in this first box. All right? This is just knowing stuff about God, knowing stuff about Jesus, knowing stuff that the Bible teaches factual knowledge. 
they are related, but they're different. The other one um, I look on as like mystically pictured by a husband's love relationship with his wife, that, that perfect union between God and his people that's consummated in heaven. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus meant when he said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. So that's that perfect, apex, intimate, covenant marriage between God and his people in heaven. That's what Jesus meant in John 17. I mean something lower. Does that make sense? So I'm talking about factual and experiential, things you know and things you live things you're living out. That's where it starts, factual and experiential. So first, s factual knowledge is gained from Scripture. It's gained from the Bible. So again, we're defining spiritual maturity. So a spiritually mature person has a good, complete, not perfect, but, but a broad knowledge of what the Bible says, what it teaches. You can be born again, beloved by God, have all your sins forgiven, forgiven and know very little of the Bible, right? But you can't be mature and know very little of the Bible. That's all I'm saying. Does that make sense? So definitely somebody could be alive. They could even be like that for many years, tragically, because they're not in a good church, or they haven't really been diligent and all that. They're still born again, but they just don't know much of the bo about the Bible. They're ignorant of the Bible, all right? But we're not talking about that. We're talking about maturity. We're getting a snapshot of somebody who is mature. Factual knowledge gained from immersing the mind in the Bible. They just know the Bible well, factual knowledge. And then there's experiential, which is gained by living. So basically, there are two sources of information about God, creation and the Bible. Creation and the Bible. By the way, hold on to this, because in the sermon today, I'm going to say that people that are born deaf and who can't thereby learn language are greatly disadvantaged when it comes to special revelation. They can't know language. Do you realize how tragic that is? All right, and how difficult it is for deaf mutes to learn scripture. But you've got the two sources of revelation, general revelation and special revelation. All right? Now in general revelation, you learn by living in God's world. And God uses not just nature, but history. He uses experiences to teach you things. Right? Remember that Paul said that he had learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. He'd learned the secret of Christian contentment. How did he learn that? Did he learn it by reading a book? What does he say? How did he learn to be content? Through suffering. Through suffering. And through feasting, too. Both, because he, he knew what it is to be in plenty and to have nothing. So he lived through both, and he knew how to be stable and godly while feasting. Like, let's say, at Lydia's house, she was a wealthy woman and a trader in purple garments, right? So my guess is she probably rolled out the writs for Paul and Silas, right? I would think that, uh, remember when he was in, uh, was it Malta, and some snake bit some guy right before he went to Rome? And that guy, then he healed, his, you know, healed some other people, and they... Uh, said, welcomed us and treated us hospitably. I'm thinking they had some good food. I mean, this is the Roman governor, right? So my guess is he knew how to feast, but he also knew how to be thrown in prison and have nothing to eat for a couple of days. My point is, he learned contentment by living, by going through suffering, by going through plenty, he learned it. So the first box is knowledge, gained from scripture and from living life, just living through experiences. Okay, next, faith. Faith, uh, I think it's not here on the sheet, but I've used the statement and I did actually earlier today. 
uh, is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual real realities, past, present, and future. But here I'm just going to give a simple definition. Faith is the assurance of and commitment to spiritual truth. All right. Now below that we have five bullets, which I cannot read without my reading glasses. So let's get my reading glasses. They're tiny. All right. First, certainty that invisible, specific invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future, are true. So you could get a Bible scholar like Bart Ehrman, and he might know more of the facts of the Bible than you do, but there's a big difference between us and him, so I perceive. What is it? What do we think about the facts of the Exodus or the facts of Jesus' miracles that he doesn't? That they're true. That they actually happened. Or that they are happening now. Like, do you believe that Jesus is at the right hand of God and is interceding for you? That he always lives to pray for you? The Bible says so. Can you see that? Not with your physical eyes, but you can see it with your faith. It says, we see Jesus now seated at the right hand of God. How do you see Jesus? By faith. Do you believe that there are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms arrayed against you? Yes. yes. All right. You don't see them. How do you know? The answer is by faith. By faith. Do you believe that someday Jesus will return? We already talked about that. Yes. How? You don't see it? By faith. So I gave you an example of past, present, and future. By faith, you believe those things are true. All right. Next. Faith is the assurance that specific Hope for uh, specific good things promised in the scripture will certainly come true. Now this is coming from Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What do I mean by hoped for things? What are, what are hoped for things? Say again. Happened Haven't happened yet. Are they good things or bad things? Good th they're good things, all right? We don't hope for things that we don't want to happen, all right? That's called dread or something else, all right? So we're talking about good things. How do you know that there are good things that are going to come? How do you know that? Believe the promises. promises. Promises have to do with good things that haven't come to you yet. Are there any promises that cover from now in your physical life until the day you die? Any promises in there that you can claim? Yeah. Many. How about this one? I will never leave you or forsake you. Is that a promise you can claim? Absolutely, and many others. He will not tempt you beyond what you can bear. Do you know that that'll be true from now until the day you die? Yes, and many others. And you believe that that will be true. But then it just takes off exponentially. Do you believe that all of your best things are yet to come after death or the second coming? You should. All of your best, best, best stuff. You have not had your best life now no matter what, whatever that guy is, Joel Hosting says, all right? Your best life will never be now. Your best life will be in your resurrection body. Amen? Your best life will be in the new heaven, new earth. That's where it all is. And do you believe that that's going to happen? Yes. You're assured of it. The assurance, assurance of things hoped for. Then the, the second part of that definition is conviction of things not seen. I did a careful word study on the word convict. It has to re reproof or rebuke for sin in every case. So that's what we call the negative side of faith. Convicted. Like if, if you would say, for example, uh, that was a very convicting sermon. I read a book on prayer and it was really convicting. What, what does that word convicting mean to you? 
intellectual, spiritual, emotional ways, that's what you want to act on. Okay. Would you say that, if you use the word convicting, it's like you are affirmed that the way you've been living has been just how you've been needing to live and you're doing just fine. Is that how you use the word convicting? We're aware of a lack. You're aware of a lack, a deficiency, which we generally would have to ascribe to sin. So there are some things I'm not doing that I should be doing in my prayer life. There are things that I'm not doing that I should be doing in evangelism. There are things that I have been doing that I should not be doing in my thought life or in my you know, life with the internet or something like that. I was convicted. It always has to do with sin. All right. It, it, like in our common expression, what do, when do we uh, ascribe the word a convict to someone? What is a convict in our culture? Found guilty. All right. Have we? Have we been found guilty in God's court? Oh, yes. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world. Why do we feel so guilty? Any chance because we're guilty? Because we did it? That wrong thing and the Spirit comes to convict us. Now, there's no condemnation. But there is conviction. So by faith, we have a sense of certainty of the good things that are coming. But by faith, we also see our sin. Now, let me ask you a question. Why are both the positive, the sweet positive, hopeful stuff, and the convicting negative side needed in sanctification? Need both. Why do we need both? Why do we need to be buoyed up constantly by a confidence that the future is really bright? but also extremely and increasingly aware of our deficiencies in ways we're not like Christ. Why are both needed in sanctification? Indwelling sin still there. Okay. We keep a proper view of ourselves. I think we just, we're convicted all the time. We just get discouraged. Crushed. And if we were just encouraged all the time, we'd have a pride that we were okay. Yeah, we wouldn't, we'd stop working. So you need both. You need to keep on the job, keep making progress, Conviction of sin shows you what progress you need to make. But then hope, which tells you someday you'll be done with all of this sin, and you actually will succeed in every respect, keeps you going. I would say you need both. And that's in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, I don't think Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, is a comprehensive definition of faith. It is these, but it's more. All right? Next is reliance on Christ. Reliance on Christ as all-sufficient refuge, survivor, or, or provider, uh, savior, friend, a lot of other titles I could give Jesus. What does that word reliance mean to you? Sense of reliance on Jesus. Yeah, um, when Sennacherib was trying to take over the city of Jerusalem and he sent his field commander to kind of bully Hezekiah into opening the gates and surrendering Jerusalem, um, just thus saving the Assyrian king the cost of a siege, which took Nebuchadnezzar like two years to besiege and conquer Jerusalem. It's a hard place to conquer. So if he could just talk Hezekiah into opening the gates, everybody will, can, can just go home and, you know, et cetera. But he actually asks a very interesting thing. He asks Hezekiah and the Jews that are defending the city of Jerusalem, on what are you relying that you're defying my master? Look, you're relying on Egypt, which is a splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand when he leans on it. So reliance is what you're leaning on, right? 
For example, you could imagine that you get a cancer diagnosis. If your thoughts, if you console yourself with how much progress medical science has made in that specific area, you're relying on that. Does that make sense? Same thing in, in uh, financial difficulties or recession. If you say, yeah, but I have a diversified portfolio, you're relying on that. So the reliance is what you're leaning on. A faith-filled person relies on Jesus. Relies on Jesus. So the idea is, if that fails, you'll crumble. You'll, your weight will fall to the ground. That's the staff you're leaning on. A, f a spiritually mature person leans on Jesus more and more, not less and less. I am the vine, you are the branch. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You have a greater sense of that than ever you did. The, the, the day that a really spiritually mature person dies, the day before that, they have the greatest sense of reliance on Jesus they've ever had in their lives. It's not like you get to the point where you can fly on your own now and you don't need Jesus anymore. You never think like that. You realize you have always underestimated how much you need Jesus. Does that make sense? A, a reliance on Jesus in every respect. And then finally, reception of spiritual guidance. What does that mean? To receive spiritual guidance. Gaining wisdom from people who are more mature than you. Wisdom is a very good word for it. Like wisdom is like, what should I do? Doesn't James say, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him do what? Ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he should believe and not doubt. That's faith language. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. In the context there, it's any wisdom. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So in other words, it's reasonable to put the reception of guidance, should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Should I go as a missionary to this or that, that country? Should I do this? Should I do that? Are you going to need that in your life? That's a rhetorical question. Yes, you will. All right. You need wisdom. By faith, you get it. By faith, God guides you. You feel led by the Spirit through the Scripture, etc. Guidance. All right, next box, character. Um, character is not a biblical word, um, I think, but heart is. Now, the heart is that part of you, that internal part of you, the core of your being that loves and hates, the part of you that comprehends, that understands, that loves, that hates, that makes decisions, makes choices, uh, that has emotions and feelings, uh, that core of your being. All right, so the Bible speaks of heart. So this is an internal nature, a heart conformed to Christ. And then I've got these little bubbles here, which I just kind of recited a moment ago, but look at them, and they go from top down to bottom. The first is affection, literally what you love and what you hate. The core of your being is what you love and what you hate. That's the center of it. I really believe that's the center of our salvation. God is working in you to love him with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the goal. That's what he's working in you, and that's what you'll do for all eternity. So the core of your being is your affection. And we'll talk more about that in due time, but affection has to do with uh, like a magnetic drawing, like towards something in the manner of liking or loving something, or conversely, a magnetic repul repulsion, like likes repel, where you're repulsed from something in the manner of disliking or hating. Does that make sense? So the heart, the heart has some things that you should love, and conversely, some things that you should hate. 
A very good example of this is in Hebrews 1.8 speaks of Jesus. Of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That's us. In heaven, we will be like that. We will love righteousness like Jesus does and hate wickedness. So that's that's affection. We're also supposed, we're supposed to love God, love people. We're supposed to love truth, uh, all the things that we love, all right? And then hate, the mirror image. The next comes desire. Desire is related to affection, but it just has to do with things you don't have yet. What do you want? What are you going after in your life? What are you ambitious for? What are you living for? What do you, what do you not have that you wish you did? How important is that in life? Desire. Why would we say that desire is, and someone said, desire basically defines the soul. You can, you can characterize the soul by what it wants, what it desires. Any thoughts on that? Well, you seek what, what's really most valuable to you. Okay. Yeah, if you're alive and you're growing, you're going, you're going to go after something, right? If you met somebody that said, I literally have no, nothing I want in this world. I would think that person's depressed. They, there's nothing they want. They don't want to keep living, right? At least that, I want to keep living. I want to be alive tomorrow, right? Why? Because there's some things I don't have that I want. The Bible actually portrays many godly desires. Like here's one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What does that mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Isn't it a righteousness you don't have? ways that you are not yet righteous it's huge and so yearning desiring how about this should we desire that lost people be saved should we desire like paul did to bring the gospel to people who have never heard it before well maybe we don't have his calling but we should care that that happens should we care for the alleviation of temporal suffering of those around us poor and needy people or people that are suffering in pain yes there's lots of things we should want in this world desire next will will is your choice what you choose and what you reject by the way, the first two bubbles here feed the third and not the other way around. What do I mean by that? What you love and what you hate and what you desire feeds what you choose. You choose what you love and you avoid what you hate. Think about going to a restaurant, all right? It's well known about me that I hate seafood. I have never in my life ordered seafood at a restaurant. Why? Because that's pure choice, right? I choose what I want. So. Andy, if you and I went out, would you be surprised to see me order salmon on a plank? Uh, what would you think if you saw that? You would end up eating it. You would end up eating it because I'm not touching it. You're like, can I have it? I'll take it home. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Uh, this is a very profound theological issue. All right? The illustration is not profound, but the issue is. If you ask me if I believe in free will, I would say, free from what? Free from what? Free from the heart's love and hate? No, never. You always choose what you love and avoid what you hate in some complex matrix. I will eat seafood gladly if some hostess serves it to me not knowing my tendencies. And I have done that many times. I did it more times than I could count in Japan. So I ate a lot of seafood in Japan. I didn't personally choose the flavor, but I chose to give the hostess a pleased experience of having served it to me. So there was a network of loves that caused me to behave a certain way. But you always choose what you love and avoid what you, what you hate. So we'll talk more about this. I'm just giving you an overview. Then your thoughts, what you think about in your life. That's your internal, your thought life. You're like, Pastor, can I really control my thoughts? You have to control your thoughts. 
It's very important to have a controlled thought life. So we'll talk about that. We're running out of time. And then your emotions. Spiritually mature people have healthy emotion, a healthy emotional life. Jesus was a very emotional being. Uh, there's many, many examples of his emotions. And we have to have healthy emotions. We have to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Those are healthy emotions. Um, Jesus grieved and mourned over the city of Jerusalem and its rebellion against God. We should have those kind of Christ-like emotions. So we'll talk about all that. The virtues have to do with kind of situational ethics or situations in which Jesus, like I said, rejoiced with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Those are different situations calling for different circumstances. Jesus knew sometimes to be very tender and gentle with sinners and other times to be very bold and direct with them. Um, um, he knew what to do. And so we then, and in maturity, we know what to do, what the situation calls for. Finally, action. Action, like all these first three things are all internal. You don't move a muscle. There's no m muscular movements here, all right? Action is all motion. It's, it's m movement in the world. It's things you do with your body, whether things you say or you know, sometimes it's like the walk, you're walking, like the, the walk equals a lifestyle, the Christian walk, so that kind of thing. I define it this way, an external lifestyle of habitual obedience. So we'll talk about all these words, habitual obedience. First, and this is not a physical thing, but it's prior to physical action. You present your body to God as a living sacrifice. You present the members of your body, your hands, your feet, your mouth, every part of you to God to do his will. Presentation of the body. Then there's issues of purity and holiness, things that you must not do. That's the mortification stuff. We'll get into that. And then uh, sevenfold areas of obedience, such as worship, spiritual disciplines, your family life, marriage and parenting, uh, ministry to believers, mission to non-believers, stewardship and work. Those are kind of broad. That covers most of the things you're responsible for in your life, etc. Okay? So turn it and with like, we got about two, uh, three minutes left. Let me read a summary of what I just gave you. Now, this Maturing Christians Develop sheet um, is a very quick, efficient summary of all the material I just gave you. It's not detailed, but you could use this as a prayer sheet for yourself or for someone else, right? You could pray these things for yourself or someone else um, in these areas. Maturing Christians Develop. Now, use that language instead of Maturing Christians Have Achieved. Why would I say develop rather than have achieved? Should you? Yes. All right. Do you think it's okay for somebody to come to me and say, I want you to know in the character box, I am finished uh, right there. That one's done. It's like a merit badge in the Boy Scouts. We got that one. I've got that one sewed on. Never. You're going to be on this stuff the rest of your life. Furthermore, regression is possible. You can be at a certain level and five years later be at a lower level, a worse level. It's very dynamic, so we've got to keep at this thing. All right. Maturing Christians develop first knowledge, a wide-ranging and deep knowledge of the Bible. Okay? And a wealth of rich spiritual experience. They develop, secondly, in faith, a strong sense of the reality of invisible spiritual truths, past, present, and future. A strong sense of it. That's what it means to be strong in faith. Like you can see it vividly. All right? And then a vibrant hope and a bright future, future based on the promise of God. Very hopeful person. A mature Christian is a very hopeful person. And then a deep and detailed conviction of personal sin. Mature people are not hard to convict of sin. They're convicted daily by the Spirit. They're not prideful about it. They expect to have shortcomings displayed to them. They want it. They welcome it, actually. And uh, a firm and consistent reliance on Christ, a sense of the vine and the branches, and, and absolute dependent on Jesus at every moment.
And then a consistent sense of practical guidance by the Holy Spirit. You have a sense of the Holy Spirit behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. You just have a sense of what you're supposed to do in life. You're not like, I have no idea what to do with my life. Not like that. You have a sense both in a big picture and in a detailed sense of wisdom and guidance from the Lord through scripture and the Holy Spirit. And then character. A heart that loves what Christ loves and hates what Christ hates. An array of passionate, godly desires that direct daily life. A will that's consistently submissive to the will of God regardless of the cost. A thought life that's pure and excellent. A healthy emotional life pattern after Christ. And then a consistent display of virtues appropriate to whatever moment you find yourself in. All right, then action. A habit of constantly presenting the body to God in holy obedience. A lifestyle pure from sin in, sp in sex, speech, relationship, and pleasures. We'll talk about those four areas briefly. A consistent habit of personal and corporate worship. Uh, a life of daily habit in prayer, Bible intake, and confession of sin. A pattern of biblical faithfulness in marriage and parenting, whatever your roles are in that. A habit of blessing other Christians with spiritual gift ministry and general ministry. A regular habit of bold witness to lost people. A track record of faithful stewardship of money and generosity to others. And then a habit of diligent labor for the glory of God. Now if you look at that list, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. You're like, that's it? That's like everything? It's like, well no, actually, there's more things. This is a quick summary. Do not feel overwhelmed. Realize the Holy Spirit will give you what you need to keep growing in these areas. But you have to have something you're shooting for, something you're going after, and I'll commend this list for you. So Andy, when would you close in prayer? Thank you. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.